Hello, it's Tuesday, June the 13th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio, Neil Ferguson. He's a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a Senior Fellow of Harvard's Center for European Studies. In addition to writing a weekly column for the Times of London and the Boston Globe, he's the author of no less than 14 books, including an outstanding biography on Henry Kissinger, Kissinger 1923 to 1968. If you haven't already, go buy it. We have a lot of serious things to talk about, but first let's talk about something not so serious. You're now a Californian. I am. I use the word awesome almost. Have you gone native? Completely. It's it's embarrassing. I have a I drive a convertible. I use the word awesome. I eat kale salad. It's quite sad. Are the cliches of California from a UK perspective? Are they? Do you find they actually exist, or is California just an exaggeration? I think the image that one has of of California is as a as a Brit is incredibly out of date. I mean, I think we still expect the Beach Boys to appear. And we're only gradually realizing that this is the People's Republic of California, a state more heavily regulated than France. It was certainly an education to me to discover just how extraordinarily Gallic Californian labor law was. Mm. The taxes I kind of had got wind of before leaving Massachusetts. Right. So I think the major adjustment is that to a degree that last year's election revealed, Uh, California is of the United States, but in a way semi-detached from it now. And that's a little disturbing. Anybody who's an immigrant to the United States, as I am and my wife is, arrives with a certain set of illusions. But they're important illusions about the nature of this country. And we uh, come over all uncomfortable when we hear people on national public radio talking about Cal Exit, about California seceding from the Union. I'm a historian. That that word secession is just not a good word to right. hear. So I think there's much about California that's a little unnerving, actually. But of course, there's much about it that's irresistible. I'm not going to mention the weather. It poured with rain for several months after we arrived here. I think we may have ended the Californian drought. Uh, but I'm I'm struck by something important that has to do with Hoover and Stanford. I sense, because perhaps simply Hoover exists, a diversity, an intellectual diversity uh, at the heart of Stanford and in California generally that doesn't get so widely reported. There are these libertarian cells within Silicon Valley that have some kind of positive relationship to Hoover, which is ultimately a libertarian institution, an institution dedicated to the study of war and peace, but also American liberties. So once you get over the initial shock of NPR and, you know, the kind of standard Californian set of views, you realize that there's much that is that is very healthy here. We were going to have a conversation about Donald Trump and the special relationship, and then your prime minister decided to hold a snap election, maybe the worst decision since Hillary Clinton decided to park a server in her house in Chapel <laughs> <laughs> What? Long story short, what went wrong? It's been fascinating uh, to watch the unraveling of, of Theresa May and perhaps of Brexit. The idea back in April was that uh, Theresa May, who inherited a a small 
majority mm-hmm. in the House of Commons from David Cameron would go to the country and enlarge that majority. And indeed, when she announced the election uh, back in April, these things happen very fast in Britain, unlike here. Yes. Call an election and then a matter of weeks later, it's done. At the time she called it, it looked as if the Conservatives would win a majority of 100 or more. People were speculating about landslides. And then something went terribly wrong. Number one, I think she ran a terrible campaign. And as my old friend George Osborne said, uh, they published a terrible manifesto. That much is obvious, I think. A a terrible campaign or or is she a terrible campaigner? Zero differences between She turned out to be a terrible campaigner and had been much overrated. Mm-hmm. Theresa May was largely invented by the Daily Mail after the Brexit referendum. If you remember this time last year, a Britain surprised most people by voting to leave the European Union. And there then followed a kind of Jacobean tragedy in which uh, numerous homicides took place on the stage of the Conservative Parliamentary Party Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, there were a whole bunch of people who seemed as if they might be the beneficiaries of David Cameron's defeat in the referendum. The Daily Mail decided to anoint Theresa May. Theresa May had, in fact, been opposed to Brexit, but so quietly as to be inaudible. And the Mail decided that she would be a a kind of Thatcher substitute figure. They talked her up. They exaggerated her success uh, uh, at the Home Office. And uh, they then demonized anybody who stood in her way. We were saboteurs, Ramonas, a whole series of insults, enemies of the people even. And, uh, and so Theresa May, uh, having been greatly overestimated by the Daily Mail, then uh, proved to be a wooden uh, and indeed charmless candidate reminiscent of a slightly uh, humorless headmistress. Right. The second thing quite apart from her style that went wrong was that she said to the British electorate, I need a mandate for hard Brexit, not not just some kind of fudge, some kind of compromise, but right. full exit from the European Union and the customs union, leaving not a trace of Britain's relationship with the EU. Uh, and the British public's response was essentially, well, no, not that many people who voted for Brexit who had previously been Labour supporters, turned up and voted Conservative last Thursday. And that was a big blow for Theresa May because the whole gamble was that voting Brexit was like a gateway drug to voting Conservative for previous Labour voters. Only a small number of, relatively small number of of Labour-supporting Brexiters voted Conservative at this recent election. And uh, in most of the country, apart from the northeast of England, the swing was away from the Conservatives to Labour, despite the fact that the Labour Party's leader and candidate for the premiership is Jeremy Corbyn, a figure that most people who write about British politics dismissed as the worst candidate in the history of the Labour Party, a man of the left, a Trotskyite in many ways, somebody who'd been on the wrong side of almost every issue in his own lifetime, except maybe the anti-apartheid campaign against South Africa. And yet Corbyn did well. And this, I think, is the ultimate indictment of Theresa May. Not uh, not Bernie, but Bernard, perhaps. 
There's no question that the the parallel between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn's a good one, mm-hmm. but you have to remember that uh, Corbyn is well to the left of Bernie Sanders. Right. If Bernie Sanders were to parachute into the British Labour Party, he'd be seen as a, a rather right-wing figure. So two things the American media picked up on, and I want you to either uh, agree with this or debunk these. Uh, number one is the parallel between um, United States voters, millennial voters in the U.S., millennial voters in the U.K., and labor coming along and offering free stuff, free college in particular, which was something that Hillary did as well in her race. And then the second the second issue, Neil, Donald Trump's role in all of this, the idea that Theresa May holding hands with Donald Trump caused problems. I think there's a pretty good analogy between uh, young voters, let's say the under 25s, in uh, the US uh, being attracted by Bernie last year and young voters voting for Corbyn in Britain this year. The free stuff proposition certainly went over well. Mm-hmm. Um, the financial situation of American students probably a bit worse actually in terms of debt than uh, that of their British counterparts, but relative to the recent past, the cost of a university education has gone up in in Britain. That began with Tony Blair and the end of free university. And so there's a sense in which Corbyn is essentially saying, I'll turn the, the clock back. The other thing that's relevant to me is that younger voters don't remember the Cold War and all the things that old uh, 50-somethings like me complain about with respect to Jeremy Corbyn, strike them as ancient history. And right. we, we point the finger at Corbyn and say, well, he was on the wrong side of all the major issues of the Cold War. He was more or less an apologist for the Irish Republican Army during the bombing campaign of the 1970s. If you're in your early 20s, and two of my children are, I might as well be talking about the Napoleonic Wars. So I think that's another important thing to bear in mind about this generation. You can't easily put them off somebody by talking about their record in the 1970s. It's the infinitely distant past. On the question of um, Trump, I think it didn't help Theresa May that she had one of the most awkward photo opportunities in modern times with President Trump. Um, I don't think I've ever seen two people hold hands in a more awkward way. Although, did you see her photo up today with Macron? I've yet to see that. Uh, it's interesting that that's where she's going for photographs these days. Uh, that, that tells you a lot because, of course, right. more recently, I think Donald Trump hurt her some more with his, yeah. I thought, ill-advised tweets directed against the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, after the, uh, the terrorist attacks in London. That certainly went over badly. Sadiq Khan is a successful and popular mayor with the Muslim background, and uh, and Trump's uh, tweets sounded very off uh, in a London, indeed in a country recovering from two major terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, though, is that bashing Trump, which Emmanuel Macron certainly has done, right. that plays much better than being photographed with him. So I think the Trump factor was there, but I, I mean, it's not crucial. The reason that people voted uh, the way they did last week has much more to do with the fact that the conversation basically had shifted from Brexit to other stuff, including the cost of higher education, the National Health Service, how the elderly are cared for uh, if they're in long-term care, suffering from dementia. Those issues turned out to matter more than Brexit. This tells us two things. One, issues like Brexit 
have a half-life of about a year. So populist issues, which seem to matter tremendously a year on, no longer are the dominant issues in the conversations in the pub. And Theresa May's bid to have an election about Brexit, having had a referendum about Brexit, uh, ended in an epic fail. Uh, I think that the second point is that politics is more and more about generations and less and less about class. British politics used to be about class. Everything in Britain used to be about class. And the Labour Party was a working class party and the Conservative Party was a middle class and upper class party. And that was how Britain worked. I think we now see a new politics in which you've got to be very careful how you handle the elderly uh, because they are a very substantial part of the electorate. And Theresa May botched that. Uh, and you've also got to bear in mind that the, the young vote, if they turn out uh, in, a, in a very distinctive way. And the, when you look at the results carefully, it is not a result that is striking in terms of, of class, in terms of gender. The party split's not very striking in those dimensions. But when you look at the age uh, groups, the difference between how people under 30 voted and how people over 60 voted is really quite remarkable. All right. So we're having this conversation on Tuesday the 13th. And at this moment, Theresa May has at least two things on her agenda. One is to come up with more votes in Parliament to actually get a working majority. And the last I saw, she's actually talking to, I believe, Irish Protestants. That's right. Trying to get her over the top. And then the second is a week from now, she has to send a delegation over to the continent to actually start negotiating Brexit. And from what I read, she doesn't have a team in place. So how confident are you that she can pull both of these efforts off? First of all, where do you see her heading for votes in Parliament? Well, the Democratic Unionists uh, have been part of the British political landscape for as long as I can remember. Uh, for American listeners wondering what on earth they might be, you have to understand that the politics of Northern Ireland has got a lot less violent, but it's right. still the politics of sectarianism. It is still the politics of uh, Roman Catholics who lean towards Irish nationalism and the unification of Ireland and, and Protestants uh, for whom the union with Great Britain, remember the country's called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That's quite a mouthful, but that's the name of the country. And the issue of whether Northern Ireland should be part of the United Kingdom is still a crucial issue in Northern Irish politics. The Democratic Unionists uh, are there and available uh, as voting fodder. It won't be a coalition, but they will vote with the government on key bills. Uh, and that's interesting because they are a party that is on board with Brexit, but not necessarily hard Brexit, because uh, one big concern in Northern Ireland is is that border between right. Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, it took an awful lot of very hard work, uh, very dangerous work in the beginning when there was a major terrorist campaign and then very difficult diplomatic work later to end what was close to a civil war and uh, establish peace uh, in Northern Ireland. There's a considerable concern in the unionist and nationalist community that things could go badly wrong if that becomes a real border again. Right. Currently, it's not. So I think that might soften the, the Brexit strategy of the government. But your second question is really the key one. Can she get her act together to negotiate the divorce? Normally, in a divorce, you know, you get to the point where both sides have sort of hired the lawyers and have taken their positions and uh, one partner wants the house and the other partner wants custody of the children or whatever it is. 
Unusually in this case, the Europeans have a very clear position. They know the remaining 27 countries what it is that they want, and that is that Britain should not benefit from leaving the European Union. Pour encourager les autres, to encourage the others, in Voltaire's famous phrase, Britain has to be made to suffer a, a bit, or at least, uh, at least a bit, maybe quite a lot, for doing this. What's the British position? Well, we don't know anymore. Uh, prior to the Thursday of last week, the election last week, the British position was going to be Theresa May's pretty hard line, exit from Europe, from the European single market, from the customs union, uh, to regain control over things like migration. But now she's failed to get a mandate for that, and she is uh, confronting a parliamentary party that is naturally disgusted, many members of which were against Brexit, mm -hmm. and you can almost hear from here the voices saying we should turn it down and look for a more reasonable compromise. That's Ruth Davidson and the like. For example, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Scotland voted to remain. This is one of the paradoxes. Scotland the picked election. up Tories. <laughs> this right. is the paradox. All sorts of things happened that weren't supposed to happen. Scotland voted to remain. Mm -hmm. uh, it voted against Brexit, and yet the Conservatives did better in Scotland than almost anywhere else right. last week. And this has given considerable power to Ruth Davidson, a uh, fascinating figure, uh, most unlikely uh, a lesbian who nevertheless has somehow managed to capture the imagination of what used to be a socially conservative country. So soft Brexit starts to become the proposition. What does that mean? Well, that may mean some kind of compromise on issues such as membership of the customs union. Mm -hmm. And what will that compromise entail? Well, perhaps some softening of the line on the free movement of people. But that's the kind of the red line for the hardline supporters of Brexit within the Conservative Party. Here's the big worry. As they wrangle with themselves to try to work out what the position now is, with a much weaker prime minister in number 10 Downing Street and vultures circling overhead, there's a risk, I think, that Britain so messes up the negotiation that after two years, nothing has really been agreed, at which point you end up with no deal at all. Now, if there's no deal at all, uh, no transitional agreement, nothing that Theresa May can sell to her own party, then relations between Britain and the continent could completely break down. Uh, I heard from one uh, business executive, it would be a very difficult thing under those conditions for planes to fly from London to any European destination. There wouldn't be a regulatory framework for trade to happen. Right. So the nightmare scenario, I think, is that Britain has so confused itself with this election that it's now going to make a mess of the negotiations. And at the end of it all, there simply won't be a deal. Uh, and that will be an enormous blow, I think, to the UK economy. And I, I worry that we're sort of underestimating the probability of that scenario, because right now most people think, oh, well, there goes hard Brexit. They're going to come to some kind of compromise arrangement. I am not so sure. All right. Well, speaking of elections and things that were not supposed to happen, that takes us to Donald Trump. Uh, I'd like you to talk about Donald Trump, Neil, perhaps through the eyes of somebody who you've come to know quite well, and that's Henry Kissinger. A month ago, a very odd thing happened at the White House. And this is a White House in which odd things happen on almost a daily basis. The reporters were going to the Oval Office to see Trump, and they were expecting to see the foreign minister meeting with Trump. Instead, they showed up, and guess what? Henry Kissinger was the guest. 
a surprise because Kissinger was not on the schedule. And also, if you believe in curious timing, this was the day after Comey had been fired. And so while Washington is running around shouting a million and one Watergate analogies, here is a blast from the Nixonian past, Henry Kissinger. You have spent time researching Henry Kissinger. You've crawled inside of his mind. You've read his papers. You must have a good sense of how he thinks. What do you think is going through Henry Kissinger's mind right now vis-a-vis Donald Trump? Well, I think the temptation for the mainstream media has been just to keep shouting Watergate and not to think too critically about how well that analogy works. Mm -hmm. And so when Henry Kissinger appeared in the White House just after James Comey's firing, there was a kind of rush to say, you see, you see, Watergate, Watergate. Right. And nobody asked the seems to me obvious question, well, what was he in fact doing there? Because I don't think uh, Donald Trump phoned up Henry Kissinger and said, look, I'd really like to make my situation worse. Please could you come to the White House tomorrow to remind people of the 1970s? But this is the question. Henry Kissinger is a very serious man. He worked for Richard Nixon, who despite his many faults was a serious global thinker. Donald Trump, despite his many faults, is not a serious global thinker along the lines of Nixon. So Again, what do you, is Kissinger trying to educate Trump? Is he trying to work with Trump? Do you think he takes Trump seriously? Well, c- Trump uh, approached Kissinger during the campaign, mm-hmm. sought a kind of endorsement, didn't get it. And after he won, sought Kissinger's advice on more than one occasion. This is not uh, private information. This is in the public domain. In my view... The most important relationship in the world has been for some time the U.S.-China relationship. And any president, regardless of his, or for that matter, her background, would do well to consult Henry Kissinger, who has access to the highest level uh, Chinese leadership, who met with Xi Jinping shortly after the election. So I think The first point is there are very good reasons why any president would want to pick Kissinger's brains about China. And I think given that uh, it had only recently been uh, the case that uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, had visited uh, Trump at Mar-a-Lago, one of the most important moments in the presidency so far, you could see at least one reason why there would be stuff to talk about. The other thing which is probably more relevant in this context, is the Russia relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your listeners will well understand that the relationship between this administration and Russia has become uh, the single biggest problem that the administration confronts. It is eating up political capital every day and eating up political time and energy. If one thing would help, in my view, It would be to show that a relationship, an improved relationship with Russia, could deliver something, could be worth something. Because at this point, it just looks like an albatross around the president's neck. And I think it's more likely that that Henry Kissinger was in the White House to talk about that, since, if memory serves, the Russian foreign minister, uh, Sergei Lavrov, was also in the White House that same day, along with the Russian ambassador. I think a legitimate question to ask is what, if anything, can be done to 
to get some strategic benefit out of improved relations with Russia. If you can show, for example, that working with Russia could end the Syrian civil war, then it might be that the public, if not the media, would cut some slack to the administration. So if one asks the question, what were they probably discussing, and I have no inside knowledge on this, it seems to me most likely that they were discussing what Russia's role will be in a new Middle Eastern policy that the Trump administration is adopting. And after all, this was not long before Trump went on his first foreign trip to Saudi Arabia as well as Israel. I think the pushback against Iran is now underway. And this is the strategic significance of talking to the Russians at that time. It's very important, it seems to me, if you're going to isolate Iran, that the Russians uh, sign up for that, because the Russians have essentially been on the Iranian side through much of this crisis. So I think that might very well be what this was about. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the Watergate analogy is irrelevant. We're really trying to reformulate US policy in the Middle East, which I think went pretty badly off course under Obama. Kissinger certainly thought that, wrote that. He and George Shultz, my colleague here at Hoover, were very critical of the Iran uh, nuclear deal. So I think there's something going on there. And the most important thing I want to say on this podcast is that despite our great preoccupation with the president's domestic difficulties, and despite the media's strong impulse to reenact Watergate, I mean, what journalist doesn't want to be played by Robert Redford in a remake of right. All the President's Men? Something meaningful is happening in U.S. foreign policy with respect not only to the Middle East, but also with respect to Russia and China. And despite all the hysteria that surrounds the sacking of James Comey and the ongoing investigations into the Russia relationship, we shouldn't rule out the possibility that US foreign policy may actually improve. It wasn't terribly good in the second Obama term, mm -hmm. to put it mildly. And I haven't given up hope that it's going to get better. Nine months ago, you wrote a column in which you described the choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump as a choice between SNAFU and FUBAR. And decorum does not allow us to explain what those military acronyms are, but people can figure it out. Nine months later, do you stand by SNAFU and FUBAR? Would you like to update, amend that? How would you describe the Trump presidency in those terms? Is it SNAFU, FUBAR, or is there a different phrase you'd like to invoke? When I used those World War II acronyms, yes. um, SNAFU and FUBAR, to characterize the choice that the American electorate faced on November the 8th, 2016, what I had in mind was that with Hillary Clinton, you got situation normal, all effed up, mm -hmm. all fouled up, shall we say. You're not a Democrat. You can't use the F word. So, and I don't believe in using right. uh, profanities on, on, on air or anywhere. So, if you voted for Clinton, you got the status quo. And if you were a voter in, let us say, Michigan or Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or for that matter, anywhere in the country where there was disillusionment with the status quo, snafu was pretty unappealing and depressing. The alternative, which I called FUBAR, effed up beyond all recognition, uh, implied the following. With Trump, you were taking a gamble. You were taking a risk. With a non-trivial probability that would you'd end up FUBAR, that we would end up effed up beyond all recognition. 
But I think many Trump voters, faced with a choice between certain snafu, guaranteed miserable status quo, or possible foobar, said, what the hell, let's take a chance on the outsider, the non-professional politician. And yeah, it may end up foobar, but at least we've given it a shot. At least we've taken a chance. And I think that motivated a lot of voters last year. So I stand by that somewhat simplistic uh, analogy. I think it felt like that choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, for voters, known, I, I know people who did vote for, for Trump. I don't think they had any illusions about him. I think they well understood the risk, but they were prepared to take it rather than settle for, for four years or maybe more of, of snafu. Right. So let's, uh, let's end this conversation by asking you the Ed Koch question. Ed Koch, the former mayor of New York, who famously liked to walk up to his electorate, his citizens, and ask, how am I doing? So, Neil Ferguson, how's Donald Trump doing? He's not Richard Nixon in the final phase of his presidency. Mm-hmm. I think this Watergate analogy uh, isn't right. It may turn out to be more Iran-Contra than Watergate, in the sense that it's a kind of drain of energy and resources, and it's damaging to uh, his reputation, but it's not fatal. That's my working assumption. The problem is this. Until late April, had you rerun the election, he would have won. So there was a very striking poll that the Washington Post was a bit embarrassed about. They buried the, the data in the 26th paragraph. Mm-hmm. But the telling point was that if you had run that election again in late April, he would have won the popular vote and he would have defeated Hillary Clinton 43 to 40. That's no longer true. What is really striking about the polling since May has been meaningful erosion of what seemed like a pretty solid base of support. And that should worry not only Donald Trump, but it should really worry Republicans. Because let's face it, before you and I know it, uh, we'll be sitting here having a conversation about the midterms in November of next year. And if the Democrats win the House, which they may very well, given the way things are going, then you can well imagine impeachment beginning pretty much immediately. And the rest of Trump's presidency will be consumed in a welter of litigation and and acrimony. And that, that was something I remember talking about last year when I looked at Trump's business career and said, you know, there is a pattern here. Can he escape this fate? That's really the key question. Is there a way of turning the Trump presidency round when you have such tremendous uh, animosity from a broad spectrum of the media and when voters are beginning to feel about Trump the way British voters started to feel about Brexit? Eh, Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. That half-life of populism problem is a very real one for the Trump administration. To turn it around, I think a couple of things would have to happen. Number one, economic success. It's clear that not all that Paul Ryan promised us is going to be delivered, to put it mildly. The legislative program that we were talking about back in February has disintegrated on impact with the House of Cards, but some of it will survive and there'll certainly be tax cuts, I hope, before the year end. There's a lot of deregulation happening and uh, more is coming. 
that combination together could yet deliver uh, some uh, stimulus to the economy. Right. I wouldn't like to bet my life on that because there's a scenario in which you get a recession and then all bets are off. But there is that. Secondly, foreign policy success. Let me come back to the point. While everybody else is watergating, watergating, meaningful things are happening with respect to North Korea, with respect to Iran. One significant foreign policy success could change a lot about the way the media covers this uh, presidency and the way the public thinks about Donald Trump. But unless you get economic success plus foreign policy success, the outlook, I think, is somewhat similar to the outlook that Theresa May uh, should have had before she called that election. The sky darkens fast if you have uh, sailed with the wind of, of populism. And both uh, in Britain and the United States, 2016 was the populist year. Uh, and 2017 and 2018 start to look like uh, the years of, of remorse. Very good. You have to run. You have to run upstairs and fill out some paperwork, I understand. I am in the process of, of applying to become a U.S. citizen. I, I hope I pass. <laughs> I hope so, too. Congratulations. When did you make this decision? It's, an, it's been a slow process, I think. I, I, I'm not sure I can even point to a particular date when I decided I, I would do it. But, but my wife is a citizen. Our son was born in the United States. At this point, I'm the odd one out at, at home. And so, uh, and so in, at some point, I think, in the last year, despite all the negative things that have been said about American politics, in that period, I took the decision that my future was in this country, and if my future was in this country, it made no sense uh, to be a mere green card holder. Uh, I didn't get to vote uh, last November, and uh, that felt wrong. So um, I've got the taxation. Could I please, please have the representation too? <laughs> Very good. Well, congratulations on um, on applying for citizenship. We'll have a separate conversation about voting in California on another day. Neil Ferguson, it was great to have you in studio today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And please tell your friends about us. We want to keep this growing. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Neil Ferguson, straight to your inbox. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst, that's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Neil Ferguson is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at N-Fergus, that's at N-F-E-R-G-U-S. And there's an entire page devoted to his good works at Amazon.com. By all means, check out his books. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. We'll be talking about polls with Dave Brady and Doug Rivers. Don't miss it. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.